Hi, I'm Bob Switzer, and this is the Epic Narrative. Good morning. Good morning. Yeah, this is a little later than usual, which is fine with me, really. It's actually better for um, for our intern slash slash uh, what starts Bob, our intern Bob. <laughs> Right, engineer, engineer Bob. Anyway, he can he he listens better when uh, when it's not so early. So yesterday, uh, yesterday, I don't know why I say things like that. <laughs> the last time we got together, uh, I I we we talked we, we ended that chapter. Uh, I believe it was First Samuel sixteen. Um, we ended that chapter with the the presence of God relieving the fear slash depression slash anxiety, the disappointment, the frustration, the insecurities of Saul would be lifted when he was worshiping, when he would connect with the presence of God. And that was really important. Uh, That's an important principle because I think that's true regardless of who you are. You don't have to be Saul and you don't have to have David leading worship so to speak you can uh you can connect when you connect in that in that realm when you connect in the spirit realm to who god has made you to be to the love that's within you because that's where he resides when you connect with that it it relieves fear because love and fear cannot exist in the same space and david David's music, David's connection to God became an on-ramp for Saul. And I believe it it invited Saul to reconnect and maintain that connection with God. A lot of people, and I think I think I hit this last time as well, but I'm I'm constantly reminding myself, you can live with an awareness of God's presence. You don't have to just find it. You don't have to Try to recreate a moment. You can live with it. You can you can constantly be aware of it. And I think that uh, for some that gets that gets scary because they think you know you're you're talking about Eastern mysticism and New Age movement and all that's and and I understand your concern, but really it's coming from a place of fear, and you can't make that kind of decision out of it. You can't make decisions out of fear. I mean, you can. You can. It's just not wise. Because fear, big concept here, fear, uh, the goal of fear is always to destroy relationship. And the goal of love is to connect you to relationship. The the one of the goals of fear is to it steals your ability to take to to make goals and to have dreams. Love releases you into the freedom of dreaming big, crazy dreams and and moving toward goals that others would say well that's impossible but love says listen you're not going to be rejected you're not you're not going to be um a disappointment you're not going to have to deal with the concept of failure because you are loved and every time someone someone who lives in fear would say hey you failed love says you just learned something Every time someone who lives in that in that realm of self-rejection and fear says, how are you going to overcome that? Love says, 
Look at this opportunity to get better. When when self-rejection and fear says, you're never going to get there from here, love says, this is a opportunity for promotion. I mean, it's it's just it's just fascinating how you can't have both at the same time, and that's why connecting to the love of God in you is so vital. It's so vital, and to live there is so vital. So, so we we end chapter sixteen with that happening for Saul, but it only happens in moments, and then he's and then the music ends, and David goes back to work um, at his at his you know parents. Far, uh, uh, not farm. What pastures? <laughs> Working for dad, and and doing his thing, just wondering what you know God's plan is for all this, and and I'm sure he's making friends along the way, and he's you know it's not a one-on-one session. I'm sure there's other servants and other family members of Saul who are around him, who are concerned for him, people who sit next to him, uh, and I'm sure it's uh, you know it's 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 good for David. He's gaining all he can from it, which is the way he looks at it. Like he doesn't look at it and say, oh, God, you you anointed me to be the next king of Israel. And, and I'm right here in the palace. Like, let's take out Saul. His, because love doesn't think that way. His awareness of God's presence is, is he's so keyed into seeing Saul respond to God's presence that that becomes his place of joy. He sees Saul respond beautifully and wonderfully to God's presence. And that's that's exciting for him to see a king, to see his king do that. I think that's awesome. On the flip side, I think, you know, I don't know if you've ever been around someone who, uh, well, it doesn't, I'm sure you've been around them because I'm sure all of us have a favorite musician, right? We have a favorite star slash celebrity that we just love. You know, we love the way they entertain. We love the way they sing. We love their style, whatever. We love their fashion. And and when we when we're around people that we really like, we like to think that we could do that. I, I get that way. Like I, I watched this show um on the History Channel called uh, Alone. This is I'm not sponsored by the History Channel. Please do not take this as a promotional event. I'm just making an illustration. So I watched this show alone, right? It's 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 elite survivalists that are literally left alone. Uh, they have to film themselves, which to me has, you know, has to be so annoying. They have to lug around like 40 pounds of camera equipment everywhere they go so that you can see them because there's no producers or other cameras around. And I, I appreciate what they're doing. I'm just sure it's wicked annoying. But I, I watch them and I, you know, I watch them survive alone. And part of me thinks, I, I think I could do that. Like, I think I could do that. I, I think. And then other times I think, no, being alone would like that. I don't, I don't know if I could do that. And that's honestly probably, uh, I don't know. I'm guessing about 80% of the people tap out or end their own survival uh, opportunities because they're tired of being alone. It's, it's, it's fascinating to me how relationships as, as much as their whole lives and literally these people spend their lives either teaching or living in a way that is in essence survival being alone is the thing that gets them it's it's amazing so i would imagine saul is listening to david and he's reconnecting with heaven and he's 
and the fear is dissipating and he and he senses some direction and purpose and he's and and wisdom starts to come to him and and he and he, and he gets he starts getting answers to all the problems that are waiting outside the room and and I imagine he probably sings along with David because as good as David is, Saul probably thinks, I, I can say, oh, I like this song. And he's singing along with David. And David would recognize that and play even you know more of that song or extend that song or encourage him. And he would see the joy come over Saul's face. And Saul probably leaves those sessions thinking, I'm, I'm a pretty good singer, you know, kind of like you and I in a, on, uh, when we're singing with the with with our Spotify or Radio? Do people listen to radio? Well, I hope they do because, you know, I might be on the radio. No, I'm going to be on a podcast. I'll probably be on Spotify. I don't know where I am, actually. Where do we Where do we produce this thing? Where did, oh, it's up to the producer? I actually don't know yet because I'm just recording these things. So time will tell. You, you can email me at thebobswitzer.com. Oh, at gmail.com, thebobswitzer at gmail.com. Yeah, go ahead, email me. Let me know where I am. Am I on iTunes, Spotify? We don't know. All right. Uh, I'll talk to the producer, Brian. We'll figure this out soon, and then I'll know. <laughs> Coming to you in a future podcast, I'll let you know where I am. Currently, I am in my basement. Uh, studio base, basement. No, I'm just in the basement. <laughs> we can call it a studio. Ah, uh, yes, I'm in a room. There's curtains and walls. And it's pretty quiet. Anyways, all right, Bob, on with the story. So so this is why I do all of that about fear uh, is because I want to lead into chapter 17, which is the big epic story. David versus Goliath. Bum, bum, bum. This is one of those stories that literally goes down through history. It is a classic. It is a classic setup when it comes to storytelling, right? It is it is the essence of a good story. It is it is David versus Goliath. It's awesome. And there are many I know that that don't believe the Bible is the word of God, right? They just they they believe it maybe is a good book or whatever and they they read the David and Goliath, and there's like, you know, all throughout um, uh, history of man, right? All through uh, anthropology, you can find lots of stories that mirror this, and some of them date before David and Goliath, and some go, you know, after, and some are written in other portions and places of the planet that would have no idea what was going on in Israel at this time. So, so I under I do understand all that. I personally believe the Bible is the word of God. And and I understand. Uh, I've I've done the research. I know that there are those who don't agree with it, and they they have they're not idiots. Uh, please, I'm not. I I they are highly intellectual, wonderful people. I do not disparage them for not believing the Bible is the word of God. I do. Now, I also believe it's inspired, not inerrant, and that's another whole level of discussion that I know for some of you theologians. Who just heard me say that? Like you're in a complete panic. You might even shut it, shut the whole podcast down at this point because you're like, I can't listen to somebody who doesn't believe like I believe, and that's unfortunate for you. I, I don't mind. I, I don't. I don't. I didn't get. I don't do this to try and change your mind. I really don't. I'm just letting you know where I stand, and I'm asking you to continue to listen and have the courage to ask yourself, well, what if? What if? Because I I do want. 
I, I want to do these stories. I want to recapture these stories for adults so that we can, we can ask ourselves, so what if this was an inspired word and not a literal, uh, um, what did I just say? Inerrant word. So anyways, here we go. I know, I know. Some of you are like, wait, what? Bob just went down the, I know. I'll hit it again. It, to me, it's, it's just where I live, so it's easy for me to to run down that trail because it's not a it's not a rabbit trail for me. I've run down the trail many times. It's a it's a roadway for me. It's it's a legitimate uh, opportunity for discussion, and that's the way I look at it. So again, feel free to email me. <laughs> okay, so David David versus Goliath. This is First Samuel seventeen. Uh, so the Philistines gathered. Oh, their forces of war had assembled at this place in Judah. Judah is Judah is the lower uh, portion of Israel. It is where basically two tribes hung out. Even though Israel was comprised of 12 tribes, they always kind of divided themselves 10 and 2 with Judah um, in, the, in the southern part. And so that's where the Philistines had gathered. It was it was a great place for war. Uh, great little valley, uh, hills on each side, uh, plenty of room for everybody to do battle, uh, opportunities to yell at each other from across the valley and try to intimidate one another. So, so all of this was going on, and and uh, because they assembled, of course, they invited uh, Saul to come and join them. So they did. And the Philistines occupied one hill, and the Israelites occupied the other, and there was a valley in between them, and everybody was prepared for war. Now, war back then was um, was often uh, organized somewhat. You would you would work out where you were going to meet so that you know you didn't miss each other and wander the wilderness trying to find somebody to fight. And uh, there were there were usually emissaries or or you know messengers that would run back and forth between the two hills with messages um, for the leaders. And often the messages were just insults. So you know they'd call each other names. They'd they would reject the offer of peace and laugh or or send back a symbol of you know a big fu type of thing back and forth and and there you go and meanwhile you know you have an army of men that are wondering like are we going to fight today or we're not going to fight today are we going to fight today uh we're not oh here comes an emissary oh we send an emissary uh you know uh, the politics involved in this could get pretty mind-numbing so the philistines they had a caused I mean, they 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 were ready, basically. Okay, so so what had occurred here was was when we enter this this chapter, we basically have what we would call like a national crisis, a national crisis. They Israel is ill-equipped at this point for victory. Um, Saul knows this. 
the forces that the Philistines had put together were big. Saul had, had won a number of times against the Philistines, but they were in smaller garrisons. He went to, you know, he took on what he could take on, and he did good. He really did. He was a good king, a good leader on, on the field. I, I think that at some level he saw himself as a military um, success. So the Philistines put together basically an army that said, all right, let's, you, you think you're successful? Then let's do this. Right? Let's do this. Now, they had lost huge a couple chapters ago. I don't know if you remember, but a couple chapters ago we dealt with um, Jonathan and his and his uh, servant climbing the mountain and take, you know t- taking on one Philistine after the other. Now, that happened soon after Saul was king. So in essence, the Philistines had already lost a huge battle with what would be considered a champion. Somebody who stood up, took, you know, that that guard, that sentry, that person at the top of the hill that took Jonathan on one-on-one and lost. And the next one that took Jonathan on one-on-one and lost over and over and over again until there were 10 or 15 of them laying on the ground. Like that would be considered this concept of, of champion uh, battle, a battle of champions. And Jonathan kept winning. So I think the Philistines, having been pretty embarrassed by this on a national level, right? Over 100,000 men ran home screaming, so to speak. I think they set this up because they wanted success. They wanted their victory. They wanted to embarrass Israel. They looked at Israel and were, uh, they were like, you're... You're relatively a new nation, right? You just got your king, whatever, a few years ago. He, he, you know, he maybe he, he punched us in the gut a few times, but he hasn't taken us out. Like we will wipe you out, and we want to do it the same way you did it to us. Only this time, we're coming with our champion. So they showed up with a guy named Goliath, who was from Gath, who had uh, a long history of being a champion. He was big. He was from a race of what's called giants, right? He'd been around for a long time. His people had been around for a long time. Not all of them were in the military, but they were around for a long time. So Saul's coming into this this battle knowing that the Philistines want a champion type of of warfare. Politics are involved. He keeps trying to figure things out. He doesn't see themselves winning this. Slavery is on the line. Becoming servants or, or being subject to the Philistines, paying them tribute, paying them taxes, paying them in goods and, and, um, and livestock. Like this was, He's, he's in a panic because he's not confident in who he is. And he's created a culture of fear. And in a culture of fear, selfishness, self-preservation is a big deal. So for 40 days, the Philistines are constantly filling the army of Israel with fear. And Saul is buying into it. Listen, we, we, we have politicians that, that live off of this, right? They live off of 
um, creating a culture of fear. And it, it, it does, it does start to take over uh, just, just like hope and love does. But, but when fear starts to take over, like everybody's about gossip, everybody's about rumors, everybody's about manipulation, everybody's trying to find their way to control. So here in this here in this national crisis with Goliath coming out every day, he's huge, right? He's got he's got a helmet that weighs you know as much as a, of a, a as a as a bowling ball. He's got he's got a the tip of his spear weighs as much as a shot put. The it's it's ridiculous, right? They, he looks like a champion. He sounds like a champion. He yells and intimidates and makes fun of and mocks the Israelites every morning, and nobody takes him on. And then he goes back to his his tent, and and the emissaries start coming back and forth. And Saul's trying to negotiate his way out of this with a, with the least amount of damage. And I have no doubt that there are tribe members and elders from from his people that are trying to give him advice. Well, you know, ask for this and do this and go here and try this and. And let them know this. And you know what? I'm tired of sitting back. Like, let's take them on. Let's just attack them today. And 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 in the mornings, like they would all run down to the base of the hill and they would, you know, bang their wooden sticks because most of them didn't have iron, right? Philistines had the had the 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 most advanced weaponry of the day: iron swords, iron tipped spears, um, iron uh, arrowheads. Like there was there was there was. Man, Israel was was intimidated in every way, and and as the politicians kept getting involved, and and different ideas would be thrown out, and Saul would have to make these decisions. Well, if we've already covered the fact that Saul is very, he's very uh, insecure about these kind of decisions. He people are expecting him. Okay, what are you going to say? What are you going to say back? What are we going to do? What are we going to do? What are we doing today, Saul? What are we doing? And Saul doesn't know, and he doesn't he doesn't have a goal. He doesn't have a dream. He doesn't. He all he has is 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 rumors and and innuendos and he starts to hear about about how this village on the border of the Philistines has made an arrangement so that they don't get attacked anymore. So there's tribes, uh, you know, there's families, tribes of families that are already in negotiations with the Philistines so that when Israel loses, they have the you know some of the best deals already in place. And there's large families that that. Um, from other tribes of of the nation of Israel that are already negotiating because they are they're involved in the trade market and and it involves trading with the Philistines so they're they're making kind of side deals listen if you guys win the battle like let's make sure that we still got this worked out like we don't want to we don't want to have any any negative effect on what we end up doing all the time and 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 then you got people who are uh, who are good grief you got people that are dating over the borders right the old classic like Romeo and Juliet stories where where this guy is in love with an Israeli girl and and now they're at war and what are we you know he's a, he's at the front lines and and so is her brother and what are we going to do and who do we root for and oh man I'm telling you like it is complicated and it's heavy and and Saul feels all of this and he senses that the loyalty of the of the tribes is being tested because it's been 40 days of sitting on the side of the hill 40 days like this is no small matter in this time period they've got i mean the 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 time for battle was in the spring it was after all the all the fields have been planted so they pretty much are just waiting right but then eventually everyone's going to have to go home 
and start the not necessarily the harvest, but but getting ready for the harvest and and uh, making sure that the weeds haven't overtaken the the grounds and they need to check on their livestock. And if we lose this battle, there's a good chance that we're going to lose a lot of the crops and we're going to lose a lot of, a lot of the livestock because the Philistines are going to want it as payment for not killing us and. And they're going to want slaves, and that means we're going to have to send our daughters and maybe our sons uh, over to them. I mean, it's 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 it it's a tough spot to be in. I don't envy Saul. I don't want to belittle what he's trying to do, and that's why I wanted to layer all that in there for you. Because a lot of times it's easy to read. Again, I've said this before on this podcast. Like many times, I've heard these stories, and people don't take the time to show you how complicated it is because of the relationships that are involved. Because they're usually just trying to either prove a point or manipulate behavior. It's never that easy. And Saul is in the middle of all this. The Philistines are poised for victory. They have no need to negotiate. They were they were on the verge. They had a perfect champion, probably trained in warfare, one of many of what we consider giants or big men that that existed in their land. They were left there by Joshua. You can look that up in, uh, I think it's Joshua 11, uh, where it talks about that. And the and what Goliath would do every day, I mean, day after day, it had to get so old. And at some point, you just probably looked at him and thought, this is like insurmountable. There's no way to, to beat this guy. Because in an open field with a man that big, and I'm sure they've, you know, as, as I'm sure there are people in the army who were trying to figure this out. Well, if we send somebody really small who can run really fast, he might be able to get up to him and maybe, you know, maybe stab him. Maybe cut, you know, his Achilles. Maybe, you know, maybe jab him in the, in the stomach or whatever. But they're like, but if, when you get up there, like this man is huge. If you send somebody little, then, then it's only going to take like one punch and he's going to fly into the sky and then this guy's going to walk over and crush his head like a grape. His shin guards weighed probably eight to nine pounds a piece. So then they were like, well, who's the biggest guy we got? Well, guess who that was? Yeah, that was Saul, remember? Because he was a foot and a half taller than most everybody else in all of Israel. So Saul's the big guy. The king ain't going in. Not going to happen. And you got guys who you always have ego guys, right, who just can't wait to fight. Uh, They'll take them on. But there was no way to guarantee a win. And you got, yeah, I'm thinking of like, like uh, <laughs> uh, some of the athletic teams I've been on, you know, you always have, you just always have the one guy who thinks they are the best of all time. It doesn't matter how big or small your school is. They believe they are the best in that particular sport, in that position of all time. And they don't care who you are or or what professional they're compared to. They are better than they are. So you know that there's a few of those egomaniacs that are part of this battle, right? And they're screaming stuff back at Goliath. But they ain't crossing the line. They ain't, they ain't volunteering. But they got a few things to say. 
And Goliath probably laughs and he waits and just says, come on out, come on out, prove it. Right. Same way. A lot of times, again, in sports, if we if we heard people on the other team, you know, during warmups or whatever, belittling us or making fun of us, like we often, at least the teams that I was a part of, we often were told, you know, don't say anything. Just just smile and let's see if they prove it. Let's see if they prove it. So I, I just think that there's a there's a lot of variety of responses going on in, in the Israeli army, but nobody's actually crossing the line. Now, Saul um, puts out some uh, incentives for people to cross the line, right? He's like, okay, uh, your family will no longer have to pay taxes. Um, You'll get, you know, this gift, that gift. Oh, and you'll get one of my daughters. You'll be part of the royal family. I will be your father-in-law. You'll have access to the king. You'll have access to power. You'll have access to to authority. You'll be able to make a you know make interactions and, and agreements with with people from other nations without any problems because you'll be related to the king. All of those things are motivators, right? They're motivators, but they're motivators that come from a culture of fear because when you're when you when you're a politician in charge of of a culture of fear. The only way to motivate people is by bribery because in fear, like I said, a culture of fear creates this concept of selfishness and self-preservation and hoarding. (laughs) I don't know when you're listening to this, but, but uh, we, in my current status, right? The whole, one of the main reasons why I started doing this whole uh, storytelling podcast is because we were under what was considered um, quarantine for the coronavirus, Corona 19, oh COVID 19, sorry, the coronavirus, COVID 19, and there's this culture of fear that wants to take over the nation, and part of it you see in the hoarding of things, right? And one of it, one of the things was toilet paper. Still have no idea why, but when quarantine was announced, when everybody was on lockdown, people went, people went crazy for toilet paper. Now, some theorize it was because they used to always go, you know, to work and then go to the bathroom so that they could use work's toilet paper and, quote, save money, right? Because work can afford it. And there might be some truth to that, but for whatever reason, I mean, it it was weeks. It was like at least six, maybe eight weeks before you started to see toilet paper back on the shelves. And then it was like only one package per person. And we, my wife and I, were kind of chuckling because, you know, we raised four children and we thought there's no way. Like we go through a package like they, like we would have been we would have been in deep trouble had we had for our four children at home uh, 24 hours a day. Like I, I get it. You needed more toilet paper. But man alive, people were hoarding it. It was insane. And then, there were, you know, there were others who were trying to sell it online for triple the price and they were getting it because people needed it. It was it was pretty crazy. It was pretty crazy. So the culture of fear will make people get pretty crazy. And the only way really to motivate them is by trying to say, hey, I can give you more. You'll be set up for more. And that's exactly what he offered. I'll set you up. I'll set you up. I'll set your family up. 
you'll be you'll be a champion. You'll be related to me. Your family won't have to pay taxes ever. All that stuff. It's all fear-based um, manipulation uh, and incentive, rather than love and hope. That's that's the that's what God works out of. He motivates because he, love is others or others oriented. Hope brings life to other people. And a culture of that, that type of culture, where is is a type of culture where where people would step forward to help one another out. And honestly, I see that a lot. I see that more currently under this uh, COVID nineteen deal. I see more hope and love than I think a lot of politicians would like because they don't know what to do with it. People with hope and love are willing to be careful, but they want to see each other. They want to do things. They want to bring hope and life to other people. And staying at home and not talking to other people and not being helpful to other people just doesn't fit for hope and love. So they find ways to bring hope and love to one another. And the politicians often, the politicians that are motivated by fear are often trying to find ways to control that. Because love is out of control. It's out of control, people. Love is out of control. It does crazy things. It's true. It is. That's the awesome thing about love. Fear is all about control. Love is out of control. And you could you could point to just about any newly connected couple, and they just do goofy things because they just think, well, I love them, right? It's just out of control. They just do crazy things. So love and hope are more powerful than fear and selfishness, but fear and selfishness is what Saul was living under. That's what he knew. And like any, not any, most stories of a hero, most of them come from a culture of darkness, right? A culture of fear, a culture of suppression, a culture where everybody's out for themselves, nobody works together, nobody connects with one another. And then and then the hero. She arrives or he arrives on the scene and and she refuses in or he refuses to to give in to the fear. They just see an opportunity for hope. They, there's a, they see an opportunity for victory. If we could just all work together, and it uni, love unifies. They see what fear has done, how it's separated everybody. And I'm sure Saul is seeing that too, right? I'm sure many of the tribes are, are bickering amongst each other because they're trying to hoard their supply. They're trying to hoard their part of the, of the pie. They're trying to get more so that they end up okay, their families end up okay, their villages end up okay. Every 40 days, messages have gone back from the front lines, back to the villages, back to the families saying, we haven't done anything yet. Their champion is huge. Goliath is still out there. Saul can't make a decision. No one seems to know what's going on. We're just sitting here on the hill. Every morning we go down. I mean, it's and every morning we come back. Like, we don't fight. We don't know what we're doing. It looks like we're going to lose. Philistines are insurmountable, undefeatable. We're in deep trouble. And then, verse 12. Now David 
was the son of Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. So he's from this area where the battle's taking place. There he was, the hero steps up out of out of seemingly nowhere. You're like, no, 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 Bob. He's been in the palace many times. I know. And yet, Saul had probably never met him. And we see that in the story. So Jesse had three sons that were in the battles, okay? His firstborn, Elab, his second, Abinadab, and the third one was Shamaha, Shama. <laughs> I know, I know. I, lo- I love... I love it when I mess things up because I, I picture in my head somebody listening going, no, 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 this is how you say it. <laughs> and, and I thank you for that. I'm glad you made it sound right in your head. David was the youngest. I do, I do like the fact that he's now considered a son of, of Jesse in the, in the scripture here. The three oldest had followed Saul, but David, oh, this is in verse 14, but, or 15, sorry. But David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep at Bethlehem. So David would be at the palace, even though he had the, you know, because he, had, well, not even though, but he had the honorary position of armor bearer, okay? So he would go back in and out of the palace and probably uh, the staff slash servants in the palace, the people who were around Saul, would see Saul starting to kind of spiral down into depression or, because it's not, I don't think, see, I don't think Saul had a mental disorder where he all of a sudden out of nowhere, he would crash. And and then he was in this in this deep spot of despondency. I think, I think like many people who deal with this kind of self-rejection, it, it, it comes on you in waves. And then sometimes the waves, you know, get closer and closer and then eventually eventually you're just under underwater and you can't get out. So I think the staff probably kept an eye on him. And when he started to be despondent, when he decided, you know, he's a failure, when somebody didn't like his decision, when his father would criticize his uh, choice for staff position for somebody or for the way that he handled the contract negotiations with a particular nation or whatever. And he just, he would start to, spiral downhill they would send for david and say hey you you know let's let's put on a let's put on a little concert for saul let's get his spirits back up he's starting to spiral down so that's what i think was going on the way that this is phrased in the hebrew david went back and forth from saul and and he tended his father's sheep at bethlehem he he was not welcomed back home as a son it wasn't like he went back and forth between saul and jesse the Bible makes it clear that he went back and forth from playing in the palace to playing in the fields, in the pastures. From the palace to the pasture, from the pasture to the palace, back and forth, David would go. So 40 days, this has been going on, morning and evening, keeps going. And Jesse says to his son, all right, listen, you, you know, we need to bring food to the army. This was a common thing. If you sent family w- was responsible to supply their family members with food. Now, it wasn't like they would just go to their tent and hand them the food. It would go to a supply tent. 
So all the families donated supplies and because all agrarian societies would focus on different things. So you would have, you know, a lot of these types of vegetables, these types of plants, these types of livestock from different agricultural uh, nuances of the de- of the top- topographical um, places within the nation. And so they would send what they could and send what they what what uh, was needed, and then it would all go into a central supply tent. And some wonderful servants would be in charge of dividing it all up and making sure there was food available for the entire army. It was kind of like a giant potluck, but daily and for you know weeks, <laughs> 40 days, weeks. So he's like, all right, take this chunk, uh, this these bags of grain, take these loaves of bread to your brothers and hurry uh, onto their camp. So David did. He goes. He he gets to the to the places. He puts um, puts them in. You know uh, the cheese. Oh yeah. He also got cheese. Oh, it's always good to have cheese. I do like a nice cracker and cheese in the afternoon. Just something about it goes down easy. All right. So <laughs> a little note about Bob. He likes crackers and cheese in the afternoon. So they're with Saul and all the men. Then he and after he drops off the food, he's supposed to go find them in the in their tent. So I'm sure that their tents had the various markings on it from the various tribes and and families that they were a part of. So it was probably fairly easy to find them in and amongst whatever 10,000, 50,000 people that were there. So off he goes. And David does his thing early in the morning. David leaves his flock in the care of other shepherds. He loaded up and sent out uh, as uh, and he went. He arrives. Um, Israel and the Philistines were drawing their lines facing each other. So they'd go to the bottom of the hills and they'd face each other. And David hears all the commotion. Of course, it's it's a lot of thing. It's it's a lot of noise. All the guys getting together. You get together, you yell at one another. Rawr, fired up. And there he goes, headed down. He he drops the stuff off. Like you get the sense that he like literally almost throws it at the guys at the tent. And he runs down. And when he runs down and he and he asks his brothers, how are you? As he's talking to them, like, what's going on? Basically is what he asks them. Not like, so how are you? Oh, I'm fine. Thanks, David. How are you? He's like, yo, what's going on? What's going on? How's it? What's going on? This is so exciting. Goliath starts to talk. He steps out from the line. And he shouts his mocking, his ugliness, the the whatever. And whenever he would do this, so again, we have to read that, right? Whenever he would do this, that means that there was a period of time where he wasn't doing it. So it wasn't like just Goliath would come out alone every morning. I just want you to get this picture. The two armies would march down the down the hillside to the base of the valley. They would yell at each other. They would shout at each other. They would... You know, the sometimes the archers would pull back their arrows as though they were going to shoot them. Sometimes guys would run forward for 50 yards and then stop and, you know, rattle their swords or bang their shields or or throw rocks or whatever. And then they'd run back. And so there was this kind of posturing that would go on back and forth. And then eventually when they when when one of the generals or when their king was tired of that, then Goliath would step forward. And in stepping forward, 
he would you know roll out his insults and his challenge. Send me a champion. If I win, you are our slaves. If we win, we will be your slaves. Now, <laughs> because many people know how this story ends, let's just say that kind of um, verbal commitment was probably hyperbole because we know that David beat Goliath and the Philistines didn't lay down their weapons and become slaves to Israel. <laughs> but the threat was there. And it could be, they knew it was going to be ugly. The loser would basically have to just turn and run. And then everything would be plundered and everything would be lost. And if you got captured, you probably would become a slave. So Goliath steps forward, hurls his insults. David hears it. And whenever the Israelites saw this man, they would just turn and run from him. And again, this, the, the Hebrews is like in, in, in great fear, in a lot of fear. That's, again, I, I know, I know, Bob, you keep banging on this fear thing. I know, because it's a cultural issue. And the philosophical issues that come from fear is what destroys relationship and it destroys the ability of people to move forward because it's so selfish and it's so self-preserving and it's and it's victim mentality and it mocks other people it doesn't draw people together it it complains everything happens to some when you when you live in fear everything happens to you when you live out of love everything happens for you Nothing good ever happens to somebody who lives in fear. No matter how good something happens to somebody in fear, they know something worse is about to come. Well, yeah, great. I won the lottery. But we all know what that means. That just means I got to pay more in taxes. That just means I got to find all my relatives are going to come out of the woodwork trying to steal. That means people are going to try and break into my house and kill me. Like there's, there's nothing. When you live in a culture of fear, nothing good can happen. Even when good things happen. And that's the culture that the brothers were living in. That's the culture that all of Israel was living in. And it's the culture that Saul was using to keep control of the tribes. Why? Because the tribes were naturally divided along family lines. It's very unusual. Even, I mean, even today you can look at the Middle Eastern cultures, which are still very tribal in mindset. It's very difficult to hold a nation together because Whenever there's some discrepancies, whenever there's some bad vibes, violence will break out, what? Between the tribes, between the families. And most of the time, most of the time, the nations of the Middle East are kept together through a dictatorship mentality. Because of fear, the tribes will stick together. Or, in the same vein, because of selfish gain the tribes will stick together because the oil prices are good because the kings make a lot of money and everybody who's with the kings make lots of money and every family has weaseled their way into making lots of money and everybody's rich so everybody's good but when the when the money shuts down or when the when the benefits of the dictator shut down or the dictator dies the tribes separate this is what's going on currently in the nation of Israel for for these 40 days the the connections between the communities, the, the connections between the families and the tribes is starting to be strained and things are starting to separate. And there's great fear 
And the Israelites were saying to each other, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He keeps coming out and defying us. The king will give great wealth to any man who kills him. He will also have a a daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes. In other words, there's lots of benefits, but no one will take this man on. No one will be the selfless one to take this man on. All of us are being selfish. All of us are being victims. We are not going to risk what what we have, no matter how little it is, we're not going to risk it and lose because we'd rather just keep running back and forth. So, uh, well, boy, where, where am I? Oh, sorry, I got all fired up. All right. Verse 26. <laughs> so, this is this is this is what's awesome. Now I I, I don't I don't I, I I took a little break, so I'm back at it, everyone. Thanks so much for coming. So David hears all of what's going on, right? He's he sees this this giant. He senses this culture of fear. And remember, David is somebody who lives with an awareness of God's love. So he is somebody who's going to always be filled with hope. Always find the the selfless thing to do selfless thing he's going to work for other people and he sees the the pain and the the suffering that that the nation is under the disgrace the embarrassment the humiliation that's occurring to all these men these are men that have families these are men who have sons these are sons of of men that he knows and he sees their humiliation. He sees their pain. And he's like, what, what is going on? Like everybody runs. And, and he's looking around. And he asks again. He asks one of the men standing there. And he's like, hey, what, what again is going to be done for the one who kills this, this idiot? This Philistine who disgraces Israel? This uncircumcised giant who is defying the armies of the living God? And uh, like those, those are great verses. Those are very inspirational verses. But remember, they are in, like the inspired part of this is, is the fact that David is coming from a man of passion, a man of love, somebody who looks at, at, at Goliath and he hears what Goliath is doing and he's, it's kind of like if you loved your mother. And I, I know that not everybody has a fabulous relationship with, with their family, but if you know if 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 you were if you just adored your mother and you're out at a restaurant or you're walking the mall or you or you're uh, uh, I just realized I'm talking to her in the uh, COVID-19 quarantine there there are no mall walkings anymore <laughs> maybe you're out at the park and somebody starts mocking your mother and then the next day you take her out and they mock her again, and over and over again they mock her. And you've spent 40 days listening to this, and you've done nothing. You're probably pretty beat down at that point. You you have no courage left. You have you're just you're just a shell. That's what David sees in the men of Israel. Even those who probably arrived with courage have been beat down because they haven't stepped up yet. And every day they didn't step up. 
they felt they walked back a little more defeated. In essence, the army of Israel has been defeated 40, 40 times. They're 0 and 40 when it comes to this battle cry. They've lost the battle 40 days in a row. David shows up and he has spent, you know, years in the presence of God. And he hears somebody defying God. And he comes from a place of passion. He's like, basically, I don't care if I die. I'm not going to live in a place where the God that I love gets made fun of by a giant who's from an you know from the enemy camp. That's not that's not happening. And that's that's his approach. That's why he's asking the question, what 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 what's gonna happen? What what happens? And so they repeated to him, This is what's gonna be done. This is what Saul will do. So the 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 the, the passion of David starts to inspire the people that David's talking to. And when you talk to somebody who's in love, they are they're fun to be around. I mean, they may be goofy and they may do crazy things, but you walk away smiling. You walk away encouraged. When you see good things happening occasionally on television, you know, or on the internet, you know, something will go viral, some sweet thing that a child does or some amazing thing that a neighbor does or a delivery man does, like it goes viral, everybody sees it. Why? Because it's like, ah, that's so cool. Like something good happened. Well, David is that spark. He's that light. He's that, he's that place of hope and love in the middle of this incredibly defeated, humiliated army day after day after day because their leadership doesn't ha- can't make a decision and their and their families are back at home going why don't you just come home why are you still out there if if we're not going to win like what's you know we're we're making arrangements so when you get here we'll have plenty and we'll we'll go hide in this cave like there's all of these rumblings going on just complete emptiness and darkness has overtaken them it's kind of like when Sauron and Saruman oversaw like it was just darkness was covering the the earth it's 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 dark it's it's not good and and so the oldest son of Jesse the one who was <laughs> the one who was first rejected for king the one who was incredibly good looking and uh everyone expected to be he would be the anointed one he sees child number eight, whether or not he's a brother, is up for debate as far as he's concerned. He sees him bringing about excitement. He sees him inspiring hope amongst the men because he's asking, all right, so so what's going to happen? Basically, the way he's wording this, he's saying, when I defeat that guy, what's going to happen? Not for me. He's not looking for me. He wants to know what happens with the family. He wants to do something for the nation. He wants to inspire people. He wants his family to benefit. This is the heart of love. This is what love and hope does. It brings things together. It it drives dreaming. It puts out goals out front that seem impossible, but somehow you think, why not? Why not? We probably can get there from here if we just take one step together. 
This is what happened. The oldest brother says, heard him speaking with the men. He burned with anger. You see, passion, courage, hope. <laughs> when you get around people that are victims, when you get around people that are selfish, when you get around people who uh, are looking to gain control and you sound like somebody who has courage, who has passion, who has drive, you, my dear friend, are offensive. And the only way to stop you is to control you. And the only way to control you is to beat you down. So he burns with anger. This is a man who had no courage. He had been in this army now for 40 days. And as the firstborn best looking guy in the tribe and probably close to one of the best looking guys in the nation, he could have inspired the troops. But instead, he's like, no, let's take the easy life. Let's make sure we survive this. He's intimidated by courage. He needs to control it. He needs to shut it down because his plan is working great. <laughs> that's always that's always uh, the mantra of people who constantly fail, right? When they have no hope, they have no plan, they have no goals, and they say, everything's working great. It's going just the way I want it to. Nothing's being done, but nothing changes. So everything's good. We're all good. Nothing changed. Everything's good. Oh, man. That's the worst. So Elab comes after him, and he's like, why did you even come down here? And didn't you leave those few sheep in the wilderness? Aren't you supposed to be in charge of those guys? Now you're going to lose them too? How, how conceited and prideful are you, and how wicked is your heart that you came down here to just watch the battle? This is awesome. He accuses... David of being the very things that he is. Eliab is irresponsible because he left his family in back at home. And he and he's done nothing for them. He's done nothing to secure them. He's done nothing to inspire anyone to to you know to raise up the nation to protect the families. He's lacked courage and responsibility. He's accused David of being prideful when he's the one who is so arrogant that he refuses to risk his own self to inspire the nation and to protect others. He says, how wicked are you that you've only come here to watch the battle? You've come here to just observe us because you're too afraid to do anything about what's what's happening. You don't understand what's going on. You can't see what's going on. You're just here to be an observer. You need to go back and take care of those two or three sheep that you're responsible for and don't lose those, David, because you're just a you're just an irresponsible, prideful, arrogant little boy who can't do a thing about the things that us us adults have to worry about. And Elab's doing the exact he is the prideful, arrogant, irresponsible, selfish wicked man who who has literally only watched the battle for 40 days. I mean this is this is classic double speak. This is classic 
verbiage from people who live in fear. They, they look at somebody and they accuse them of being the very thing that they are. Not they are, like they accuse the, the, the person with courage and hope and love of being the fearful, arrogant, uh, victim. It happens all the time. And I won't bore you with the details because I don't know when you're listening to this. So in six months, it'll be a different story, but you can see it all over social media and media, media. It's just, oh, it's just heart-wrenchingly horrible. And David responds. He's like, what, what, what have I done? All I did was ask a question. And he turned away and started to talk to other people about the same thing. And the men started talking to him. It's like uh, the men answered him as before. So, so he's literally talking to more and more men. He's causing a stir. He's inspiring people. He's letting them know, I'm not going to stand for this. I'll do something about it. And they're excited. And they're so excited that they sent messages to Saul. It was reported to Saul. Why was it reported to Saul? Because in a culture of fear, rumors and gossip rule. And we see that a lot, again, on social media and regular media. Rumors and gossip are the news. It's reported as fact. It's posted as fact. Why? Because I heard it. Oh, I heard it. And that's what happened here. Somebody heard it and they were like, oh, somebody's willing to go. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be the first one to tell. You know, you know who spreads rumors and gossip? People who are very self-preserving because information becomes king. Information becomes a commodity. Information becomes money, so to speak. So this person reports it to Saul. He wants to be the one. I brought you the news. Just remember, I'm the one who told you. I'm the one who told you. I'll be the, I'm the first one who told you. I told you about David. Just remember that. And maybe he got his, you know, $100 coin and was told, thank you very much. And he walked away going, yeah, I'm the good guy. <laughs> I had the courage to tell Saul. That's what courage sounds like to somebody who lives in a culture of fear and self-rejection. Courage sounds like the first one to spread a rumor. <laughs> it's so pathetic. It's pathetic and sad that the whole nation was like this. So David, David, uh, Saul finds out about David. Saul sends for David. David gets to Saul. He's like, "Hey, let no don't 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 be afraid uh, on the Philistine. I'll go and fight him." Like like David's jacked. He is ready to roll. And Saul's like, "Whoa! All right, whoa! This is awesome! All right, let me let's let's get you dressed up. Uh, you're just a little guy, young man." And uh, this guy's been, you know, a warrior. He's been trained in warfare from uh, from being a child, probably. Um, and maybe Saul knows this because of intimidating messages between the Philistines and camp and his camp. Maybe he knows this because of, you know, that kind of information. Like, our champion has been trained since he was four years old. He'll cut your head off. He'll rip your legs out. He'll eat your arm, whatever. So uh, David's like, yeah, but I've been out in the fields with my dad's sheep and I've 
killed the lion, killed the bear. Uh, and after that, um, I rescued the sheep from its mouth. So it's like, and when it turned on me, like I grabbed it by the hair and I killed it. Like he tells them this whole story, which I'm sure that like it was probably mouth draw, jaw dropping type of information because David's a man of passion and he's a, he's an artist, a musician. Like I'm sure he's telling a story about killing the lion and people are just like, Oh my God, this is amazing. He's like, I, I killed both, you know, a lion and a bear. I, I don't think this giant's going to be much more than either one of them. I mean, he can't be. Plus, he's defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the from the bear and the lion is going to rescue me from the Philistine. And if he doesn't, fine. Like, that's, that's kind of the way the approach is. Like, I, I'm not worried about my life. My life is not something I'm concerned about. It's something God's concerned about. If I'm going to be okay... He'll make sure I'm okay. That's the way it goes. So, you know, Saul dresses David in his own tunic, which probably was very colorful. He puts on, uh, you know, a coat of armor, a uh, helmet, um, puts a sword around his waist. Uh, and David's trying to walk around. The sword's a little big. It's also pretty heavy. Uh, like I said, both Jonathan and Saul did have iron swords and spears. It was, it was. Uh, I'm sure they paid dearly from it for it. Um, but they had them. David walked around in it. He's like, this, this is not going to work. Like, I'm just not used to it. Like, this is, I'm not trained in this kind of, uh, this for this kind of warfare. So he took all the, that stuff off, which is fine. I don't, I don't, I mean, part of me thinks Saul, I, I, I go both ways on this. So you get to choose, or you can make up your own answer. But somebody who's in self-rejection uh, and, and in a culture of fear, like sometimes, Clearly, when Saul's in the presence of God, he gets inspired. So I think maybe the presence of David shifts this in him, and he thinks, this is awesome. Like, I want David to succeed. And these things are weapons of success. And I'll give them to him. Like, I'll, I'll literally, I'll just give, I'll give you everything. That's that's my heart, is that Saul was doing this because he wanted to be helpful, and he didn't know how to be helpful. He couldn't train David. He couldn't, he couldn't uh, you know, pretend that David was a warrior. He just, he got inspired. He listened to these stories of killing the lion and the bear. Like it, the, the details of these stories had to be amazing to listen to because it probably occurred, you know, in the darkness and David's, you know, running in the fields and he sees a, he sees the lion come and, and, and grab the lamb and David takes off after it, you know, grabs it by the, by the mane, bangs it on the head with a club I mean, it just it just had to be crazy to listen to. And then he takes the lamb out of the lion's mouth and carries the lamb back to the fold. I mean, how, ins how inspiring was that? And I think Saul was just like, man, I want to give this guy every opportunity to succeed because he's just awesome. I just love this guy. I mean, he's good looking. He's young. He's fired up. And I think again, David uh, Saul's heart was like this. I, I I can identify with this guy. This is what I want to be. I mean, that's classic for somebody in self rejection. You look at somebody else who's inspiring others, and you think that's that's who I want to be. I want to be like that. 
You don't look for your own identity. You look to absorb somebody else's who seems to be approved and accepted by, by others. And, and the men are inspired by David. And the, the people that were standing in the tent listening to the story that David told were inspired by David. And Saul's like, yes, give this guy everything I got. So they give it all to him. And he's like, yeah, this isn't going to work. Like, I, don't, I can't, blah, like I'm not, it's not that it's bad. It's just not what I'm used to. They're like, all right, what do you want to go with? So he took his staff, his walking stick, which he would use to club people with. And he took five smooth stones from the stream. (laughs) And he put them in the pouch. And he took his sling. And he started walking down the hill and out into the field. Remember, the armies had already retreated because the Philistine had mocked him. This honestly could have happened the next morning. By the time everyone got, you know, ran back from the valley and David was talking to the men and the brothers yelled at him and he talked to more men. And then someone reports it to Saul. And then Saul brings in David and then has the conversation with David. And then they hear his is stories that he told like like uh, it's easy to read this in our western mindset and think you know 20 minutes later David's on the battlefield I I don't think so I think it was probably the next morning I think he probably kept the tunic and the and the belt and the helmet on for a while I don't think he just wandered around the living room or the you know the tent room and was like, yeah, okay, this isn't going to work. I think he probably tried it. Wouldn't you? I would. I don't know any guy. I don't I don't know. I don't know another man or woman who wants to be in battle and is given the best, latest, greatest uh, battle gear, swords and spears at this point, is handed those things and wouldn't try to use them. It'd be like, It'd be like, you know, you get used to using one particular type of gun, but then, you you know, you, you are suddenly given the latest and greatest gun. You would probably shoot it a few times. You'd probably practice with it for a little while and be like, yeah. But there's something about the familiar grip of your own gun. There's something familiar about the, the way it sounds and the way it feels that you're like, you know what, to go into battle battle, like, I just I don't have time to get comfortable with what you're giving me. I'm gonna go back with what I know. Like that makes sense to me. I I know I know. <laughs> I'm laughing. I've heard so many messages on David and Goliath, and I've heard Saul mocked for this. I've you know for trying to give David his own gear. I've heard all kinds of cool alliterations about you know. Um, the you know the 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 weapons that man gives you versus you know the weapons that God gives you. I've heard illustrations and alliterations about um, the five stones and what they all mean, and it's just awesome. This this story goes so many different ways. But on a smaller note, sometimes some people think Saul dressed David up like that because he wanted to get credit for the kill. That when he was out in the field, people would see the king's tunic and the king's knife and the king's, uh, uh, sorry, his sword and belt and helmet 
and they wouldn't see David. They would see the helmet, which which from other parts of this narrative, we see um, he wore a crown. Saul was one of the few kings in the world that ever went into battle with with the with the crown on his head. So that could have been part of the helmet he was wearing. And he might have wanted credit for the kill so that the men would tell stories about him. I don't know that. I personally like the idea that he was inspired by love and hope. I just think it fits better with what love and hope is and what David carried and what he had been creating in the atmosphere of the camp amongst the men that, I'm again, his brothers were not happy about it. They were literally livid, bursting with anger over what David was doing, the way he was asking questions and inspiring men and telling them, I'll do it, I'll do it, I'll do it. And then Saul sends for him and he says, yeah, I'll, I'll take him on. I'll take him on. Now, why did he take five smooth stones? Well, much like if you remember Jonathan's story, Jonathan had to kill more than one champion. And then the stampede started. Then people, then the Philistines were like, oh my gosh, like their champion has killed the, you know, five guys already. Like we need to get out of here. So the five smooth stones would have come from the idea that Goliath was known to have four brothers who were also part of the army, probably not trained for the army from birth like Goliath was. But he did have four other brothers. And any one of them could have stepped in to take Goliath's place after David killed him. Like they could have forced David to kill all of them. And so David brought five stones because he didn't plan on missing. He figured he had to be ready to do battle so the whole family would go down. And we know this from other scriptures, I believe in 2 Samuel, it's a long way off from where we are currently, but we'll get there eventually, but eventually all the, all the brothers of Goliath are killed. So he goes after this. He's got five smooth stones. He's got his pouch. He's got his, uh, his walking stick, and he starts down to approach the Philistine. The Philistine and his and his shield bearer was in front of him. So his shield bearer probably was a regular sized man who would walk in front of Goliath. Just It just was a form of intimidation. The shield probably was like six feet tall and three or four feet wide. Like it was enough to probably cover uh, the lower, most of the lower portions of, of Goliath's legs. So you couldn't see the shiny uh, bronze brass uh, shin guards. So he's walking toward David. David's walking toward him, and he's he looks over there, and it's like he sees this young man. It looks like a boy, and it says he's. It's funny to me because this is the description that they give that the that Goliath was thinking. He's he's glowing with health. He's handsome, and he despised him. <laughs> I love that. I love that he looked at David and thought, dang, that's a good-looking kid. <laughs> oh, 
almost, almost I, the way that the phrasing is, it's almost like it was intimidating. Like for Goliath, this, he, he was, he was used to basically, you know, the dirt and grime of, of soldiers, foot soldiers. He was used to being, you know, if he was going to be challenged, he was challenged with some brute of, of probably questionable abilities on all fronts. Mental abilities, physical abilities, like they, they, like you would send out your biggest guy and hope that something happened. This kid was young and good looking and that was just so intimidating that it, it basically pissed Goliath off. He's like, am I a dog? You come out here with sticks? And he cursed David openly by his gods, which would have been mostly the Philistines' main god was um, this this merman called Dagon. Uh, but he, he was kind of like a Poseidon type of um, look to him. He's like, come here, I'll give your, you know, I'll, I'll tear you apart and give your flesh to the animals because you'll be in so many small pieces. And David says, you know what? I'm not scared. Like you come to me with all that crud, the spear, the sword, the javelin, whatever. I'm coming here because I love God, dude. I love God and I know that he's real and you keep making fun of him and you keep making fun of his army. And you've defied us for long enough. This day the Lord will deliver you to my, like, I am so stoked about this. I'm going to strike you down. I'm going to cut your head off. I'll give your carcass and the carcasses of the Philistine army. Yeah, I love that. David's like, yeah, I'm not going to just kill you and go back home. I'm going to kill you and I'm chasing down all your stinking friends too. We all are. Everybody's coming. When you go down, your whole army better run because we are coming for you hard. And all people who are here are going to know that it is not by sword or spear that our God saves. But it's because he just wants to. And he will give all of you into our hands. <laughs> this is awesome. So David, David basically in those, you know, in his speech, right, he declares that his motive and expectations. He's like, God's going to win this. Goliath was not a threat. That's, that's basically what he's saying. You are not a threat to the plans of God because God wants us to win this battle. You're not a threat. You can't change that. Slings, by the way, just on a side note, physical note, slings were, were incredibly powerful uh, weaponry. Um, a stone from a sling could travel between 250 to 300 miles an hour and be accurate up to 400 yards. That's a long freaking way. Later, um, David's army is, when, when David's king, his army is known to have a front force of up to a thousand sling throwers who were accurate up to 300 to 400 yards 
in both their right and left hands. They were from the tribe of Benjamin. So imagine what that must have been like. You would hear the, the, the wind, the whirling sound of slings. And then everything would go silent. And all you knew was that somewhere in the sky, there are rocks traveling at you fast enough to literally shatter your leg if they hit it. To split your head wide open. Not just knock you out, like rip your head open type of speed. 300 miles an hour, that's like bullet speed. Yeah, I mean, honestly, this is this is not like, well, David's got his sling. Boy, I sure hope he hits something. No, David was good with this sling. That's why he took it. To use a gun analogy, it'd be like, you know, you're, you're 100% accurate with a particular type of pistol, and that's the pistol you have with you. You don't plan on missing. So the Philistines moving closer. David's running toward him. This is a moving target. He knows if I keep moving, if, like that, you've got to be you've got to be incredibly accurate with a with a spear that has a head on it that weighs almost fifteen pounds. Man, that thing will move fast, but you see it coming. It's huge. They say that the you know the the end of it was was anywhere from eight to twelve feet long. Like you're gonna see that coming. I know it's scary, but David's like, I'll just I'm coming at him. He knows that he's accurate with his sling. He does not need to be standing still in order in order to make this this thing fly. And he's rolling. He reaches into his bag. He takes out a stone. He starts he starts whirling that sucker around. And he he let that that stone fly, and when that thing hit the the forehead, or even the face of that king uh, of that giant, it's it split that giant in two. Now his helmet might have held his skull together, but that stone went right through whatever it hit, because he was way closer than 300 yards, 400 yards, probably 200 yards. He was probably closer than 100 yards. When he let that thing fly, that bad boy was was humming when it hit him in the face. It says the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face first to the ground. That's awesome. Probably a bloody mess too, but it was awesome. And David goes over. And without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine. He killed him. It, the stone killed him. That's what happens when you rip somebody's brain out with a with a rock. So David runs over to him. He pulls <clears throat> the Philistine sword out of his, you know, out of his uh, sheath or belt or whatever, and he he you know drops it. Because you don't you don't swing that sword. That sword is that is no small sword, and it weighed a lot. And he dropped it on the on the back of that that giant's neck, and the head just rolled off. And I would imagine the guy who was who had the shield at this point had already dropped the shield and was like running, because when the Philistines saw 
that he was really dead. And that's why he cut off the head, right? Because I'm sure, I'm sure that on one side, the, the Israeli army was probably cheering in disbelief. You know, it's, this is kind of like the, the three pointer with zero time left on the clock type of hit. Like, like David hits the giant in the head, the giant falls to the ground and the Israelis go, yeah, like this is awesome. And then they see David running over there and the Philistines are, are standing on their side of the valley going, wait, what, what, what just happened? Cause you don't see a rock like that rock, a rock traveling that fast, a stone is not like something you could watch. Like they, they probably saw David running they probably saw the sling sl- whirling, and they probably saw the rope of this, you know, one side of the sling being let go. But all of that, they would not have seen the rock. They would just said, "Is you know, did he hit him?" And then, and then Goliath falls to the ground. Well, maybe he hit him, but is he dead? And then they see David run up to him, climb on, you know, climb up, pull the sword out. And chop off his head. Well, now they know he's dead. Right? He holds that bad boy up and it's just dripping blood. Blood and brain running down his arm. Running down his his chest. He shows it to the army of Israel. They're freaking out. The Philistines see like, okay, he's really dead. And they're like, out like they just start to run and Israel's the Israeli army's like oh wait we get to go after them and they started running and everybody started you know killing and for like the rest of the day it says that the the, you know the dead were strewn along the road like they just kept running Israelis Israelites kept running after them chasing them in little little pods little groups of men would chase after other little groups of men and eventually they all turned around and they came back and they plundered the camp. People got swords and spears and bows and arrows and tunics and belts and helmets. And, oh, man, it was just awesome. They, they took down the tents. They stole all that they could. They, took, they plundered everything. They made it so that the army of the Philistines would have to basically resupply for the whole next year before they could come back and attack them. It was it was pretty awesome. It was a great day for the little guy. Then this this verse, verse uh, fifty four. That's a long chapter. Fifty four. David took the Philistine's head and brought it to. Jerusalem. Everybody else is chasing the Philistines, killing and running back to the camp, plundering. David takes the head of the champion of the enemies of God and he walks it to Jerusalem. Jerusalem does not belong to Israel. It is held by another tribe. Crazy. That that city, that city was so well defended 
that, that literally Israel and Saul had to have a, you know had to negotiate trade deals with them because there was no way to get rid of them. The tribe, it really was a, a large tribe of people that over that you know that that took took on that city and wouldn't let it go. They were not planning on leaving. So where does Jerusalem, like why take this to Jerusalem? It doesn't even belong to your nation. Because I believe David remembered a story from the time of Moses where God told Moses, I will have a city and the city will be for my people and it will be known as the city of God. And it is where, you know, I will dwell. And I will, I will tell you this city. Basically, I'll, I'll let you know when you get there. Moses never saw it. He never knew. I think God told David what city it was going to be. That's, that's, the only, that's my only explanation. I think, I think in one of those many sessions that David had alone with God in, a, in that mystical connection that he had in those heavenly places, I think the Lord said, it's Jerusalem. And David would have known where Jerusalem was because of where Bethlehem is and where the pastures would be that he would have taken, taken the sheep. And it would not have been out of the realm of possibility for David to walk a distant hill and look over and see that city and know that's going to be, that's going to be the city of God. That is going to be the city where, where, where the temple is built. He just knew it. And so he took the champion, the defeated champion that, that belonged to the enemy of the armies of God, and he took it to Jerusalem. Now, I, I can't imagine that the guys, you know, the tribe that runs this, and I know I should have looked up the name of the tribe, but I didn't know I was going to go this far in the story today. So, sorry. I, I'll get it to you. I'll get it to you soon. I can't imagine what they were thinking. Like, like uh, I don't know, end of the day. This young, good-looking kid who is covered in blood and brains comes walking up toward the city. Like it had to be, if, if you were kind of a lookout, right? You're looking along the road, and I'm sure David wasn't part of a crowd. Like even if you were around David and, and you just see this guy holding the hair of some big head, right? This is a giant's head. The blood's all dried up at this point. It's dark red. It's covered in dust. The head of the giant has a big hole in the front of it. He's just walking along the road. As a lookout, you'd be like, okay, who is, okay, merchant, 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 tradesman, women with water, farmer, farmer, wait, what? Is that a kid? Is that a kid? What is he holding? Hey, come here. What? Look down the road there. Do you see that kid? He's kind of walking by himself. What is he holding? Oh, yes. Um, let me see. Um, um, uh, it looks like a looks like a head. That's what I was thinking. It does look like a head. Well, does he have a weapon on him? 
I don't know. He's got a little pouch. He looks like a shepherd, actually. He's got a little pouch. Maybe he's got like some, you know, sling. I don't know. And like they're, they had to be watching him. And I'm sure that they called other people around. Like, keep an eye on this kid. He's, it looks like he's holding. And as he got closer, like, yes, he is holding a head. He's holding a very large head. Not of a lion. Not of a bear. He's a, a large human male head. Because we can tell by the beard that it's, that it's a man, but but it is messed up, dude. That dude's face is messed up. Ugh. And I think David probably walked up to that that city, and he looked at the gates, and he knew it didn't belong to God yet. So I don't think he went in. I think he just tossed the head at the base of the gate, and I'm sure there were probably some guards there at that point. And probably a few elders, and they're just looking at him like, like, what kind of threat are you bringing to our house, to our house? What kind of threat are you bringing? And David just throws the Philistine's head down and turns around and walks away. And they probably were very confused. They could probably tell it was a Philistine because of the type of helmet that was on his head. This this kid looked bloody and tired and dusty and thirsty, and he just throws the head and turns around and walks away. But I think he did it as a prophetic act that the enemies of God would one day all be defeated and the city, this city would belong to, to the God who defeated the Philistines. And then we get this phrasing, right? As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, going out to meet, So this is like fall back to the beginning of the story, beginning of the, of the uh, approach. He, he goes to Abner, his, his commander in general, he says, Abner, whose son is that young man? And Abner says, uh, I don't know. He goes, well, find out. So when David returned from killing the Philistine, so he's, he's, he's killed the Philistine. He's taken the head all the way to Jerusalem. Then he's come back to the Philistine army. Now, no one touched the giant's tent because that belonged to David. Everyone would have known that. Nobody messed with the giant stuff. No one plundered the giant's tent. David walked back onto the battlefield, or to the that the battle area. Really, I mean, the field was in the valley. The tents would have been on the hills. So he walks onto that army hillside, the only tent that's probably still standing and hasn't been rummaged through. He walks up to it and he takes the weapons of the Philistine, all of them. He picks them all up. This had to be good grief. Um, you know, you got a nine pounds, a nine foot spear, um, 125 pound shield, a 15 pound spearhead, uh, you know, a 35 pound sword. Like it, this is not like I, I don't think he carried them all. I think he probably put them in a cart he takes him to his own tent. Somebody showed him his own tent, <clears throat> which I'm sure came out of inspiration. Abner, the commander of the army, probably said, you know, as everybody's running away, he probably grabs some servants. He's like, put up a tent and, and put it right here next to the king, and that's going to be for David when he gets back. So David gets back. He puts his is the weaponry in his own tent, his special tent, and he goes in to see Saul, and he's like, Saul, 
uh, he's like, whose son are you? And why would he ask him that? Well, because he had promised. He promised that this family would now be married into the royal family. He promised that that family would no longer have to pay taxes. So he needed to know which family was now going to be tax exempt. And he said, I am your son, the servant of Jesse of Bethlehem. See, David David played for Saul many times, but he never looked for recognition. He never went, hey, make sure, make sure Saul knows who I am. Make sure Saul knows. There's, there's something, you know, amazing about people who don't look for their own um, promotion. And yet they do everything necessary. They do it well, and they do it for the right motives to bring love and hope and connection to others. And in that, God does bring them favor, and they are an inspiration to others. And people, they do get exalted. But I'm sure there were many people between the time that David first got introduced to Saul through music and the time that David actually introduces himself to Saul here at the end of defeating Goliath, many other people who were promoted and looked to be blessed and favored in front of David. And David didn't worry about them. All David worried about was staying connected to the love and presence of God within him. And he let God deal with the details. That's that whole concept, right, of trusting the Lord with all your heart. And don't devise your own plans. But in everything you do, acknowledge him. Be aware of him. Stay connected to love. And he'll direct your paths. He'll make a way. He'll get you from the pasture to the palace. Bless God. Glory. Well, I hope you guys had a fun going through this incredibly familiar story. And I look forward to uh, jumping on very soon and doing some more. You guys are awesome. Feel free to reach out. Let's talk. Let's get to know each other. And until then, stay connected to love, everyone. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the epic narrative if you have questions for bob or would like to reach out for booking please email us at thebobswitzer at gmail.com or visit thebobswitzer.com if you haven't already please subscribe to the epic narrative podcast on apple podcasts spotify or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded see you next week for another chapter in our story on the epic narrative